Hello, everyone. Welcome and welcome back to this episode, episode number two of Microscope. We are your hosts, Samantha. And I'm Mike. And today we're going to talk to you all about the California forest fires, which we've all seen in the news are devastating. Absolutely devastating. They're awful. But I want to know, because Mike, congratulations. You finally figured out how to enter the group chat on Instagram. Hooray. Good for you. Oh, it only took you to like three months to figure it out. But no, it's great. And we had to move the group chat to Instagram because we just signed. Well, actually, I'm announcing it here for the first time. We signed two people from the UK onto WISP as a talent that are going to join us on our other podcast, Dicks and Politics. But Mike, Yay how have you us. been? How been, been how, what was it that prevented good. you from joining us in the group chat? Were you in the lab? Were you climbing up a tree? What was oh, it? I, I was uh, saving the whales. No, I, uh. <laughs> no I, honestly, like I am so incapable of using technology. It's quite sad, especially in terms of like social media. I feel like other people know what I'm talking about where <laughs> you see a notification, you see a text, you're like, Oh, good. Yes. Thank you for that. And then it's just gone. It's, oh. just, it's like a plastic Forget bag that the in the Forget the person wind. is actually trying to talk to you. You're just like, oh, this person texted me. How nice of them to think of me. And you just go right yeah. back to your research. Am I? I go just, right back to what I'm doing. Yeah. That's nice. Just to let everyone know. Yeah, like, we're, right. like, this is my company, right? WISP is my company. And I have specifically made group chats for everyone in the company. And then every show has its own chat. And then every department has its own chat. And so I try to make it so easy for people like Mike, who are just the brilliant ones among us, but don't even know which way is up. And even that. Thanks for that. I, I, I use emojis. I literally write things out for you because I know you read for a living. So I write Honestly, you out. should see these messages we get. They are beautiful. <sighs> I, I got to give you credit there. I love the emojis. I'm a, I'm, oh, thank I'm you. a gift person, but I appreciate the emojis. <laughs> I try to make it as easy as possible. But another thing that we want to make as easy as possible is for people to really understand what causes these horrible forest fires? And of course, in the same vein of what we're always talking about, what can we do to make sure that we are understanding what's happening, why it's happening, and how can we have a positive impact rather than a negative one? So, Mike, I understand that there are two causes <clears throat> of wildfires, which are... Which are... So there's actually three, and we'll Evans. get to that. So Okay. <laughs> There's two big things to consider when talking about the prevalence of forest fires or how easy a forest fire can start. And one is the climate of the area. So what do I mean by climate? Um, Specifically talking about the weather conditions, right? So that includes the temperature of the area, what's the precipitation or how much it rains um, over a long period of time, right? So you're not going to say, oh, the weather is... The weather of March is <laughs> right. 80 degrees. No, <laughs> you'd say overall March was like a relatively warm month, right? So that's what I'm talking about with climate. Got it. The other thing is weather. So that's the state of the atmosphere. So the temperature so, and the precipitation. Yes. Right. So when you wake up in the morning and you say, you know, Alexa, what's the weather? Oh, God. Oh, she just beeped. Oh. Alexa, stop. <laughs> Hi, Alexa. No, Alexa, stop. 
Evans. She's everywhere. She's in every room. But anyways, it's when I wake up in the morning and I say her name and I say, tell me the weather. She tells me exactly what's happening within, you know, a 12 to 24 period. But climate is more like, so Samantha, I understand you grew up on the water in New England. What was the climate like? And I'd say, well, you know, for the most part, it was anywhere between, you know, 30 degrees and 80 degrees, give or take over a 10 year span. And we usually saw rain at least once a week, something like that. That's climate. Yeah, sure. I'll let you get away with that one. (laughs) Thank you. I appreciate that. So is it true? Because I think something that we learned at a very early age was only you can prevent forest fires. Is that true? Yes. Yes. That Smokey the Bear was the smartest person you'll ever meet. <laughs> it's exactly like when you point one finger, you have three pointing back at you. Yep. So let me reference a study by Spyhard at all, or Spyhard and all of his colleagues in 2007 that directly linked approximately 95% of all wildfires to human activity. Oh so think about, think about that. 95%, right? So 95 out of 100 forest fires were directly caused by humans. Okay. I have a really silly question. And I'm sorry, I did not ask you this in rehearsals, but I'm going to ask you this now. So I, when all these horrible forest fires were happening a few months ago, I was listening to the news and I was talking to my parents and I was like, I just don't understand how this happened. And I will not divulge which parent it was, but one of my parents was like, well, it's just so hot out there that the leaves just burst into flames. And I'm like, excuse me? Okay, so before I go into my like actual question, Mike, is that true that leaves will just spontaneously combust? Or was my parent just having a moment? They were having a moment. Okay, me, all right, fine. Because um, my mom says ridiculous things like that, too. You know what? We love our parents. I love my mom and dad. But sometimes, you know, you know, they're getting old, and they might just say things to get me to shut up. I can't blame them. So, all right. Mind you, right, right, if there was a lightning strike, then you would get a forest fire, or at Got least it. a fire. Okay. Maybe that's what they meant. I don't, I don't, when they, they told me this, I was like, what do you mean? Benefit of the doubt. <laughs> a leaf woke up in the morning and was like, you know what? I am going to completely, like, unprovoked for no reason at all, I'm going to burst into flames. Okay, so here's what I think about wildfires, yeah. right? Because I'm in sales, so I'm always thinking about money. Wildfires, they are unbelievably expensive to contain expensive. and yeah. stop. And I remember, so I spent eight weeks, this is about 15 years ago, I spent eight weeks hiking around uh, in Arizona. And it was fantastic. And one of the young women that was leading my nature walk, just beautiful. Uh. And I will never forget that I had one of the most incredible, I had two really incredible moments actually rolled into one that I'll share very quickly. I was up on top of a mesa. And so for those of you who don't know what a mesa is, it's basically like a mountain that's flat, (laughs) flat on the top. It doesn't have a peak. It's just flat. I was up on top of a mesa and I remember standing there and I, there were only a few other people with me. So I essentially was alone 
And I looked off in one direction to my right and it was sunny blue skies. It was gorgeous. And then I looked over to my left and there was a thunderstorm and I could see the lightning and it was the most, it was the coolest thing I'd ever seen. But then I heard, oh, it gets better. Then Ah. I heard sort of like a, Almost not. I don't want to say like, oh, I heard a rustling in the bushes because anyone who's been to Arizona knows that there really aren't many bushes out there (laughs) except for like cat claw and you don't want to go near it. So (laughs) I heard sort of like a a scuffling behind me and I turned around, Mike, I'm not joking. There was an entire pack of wolves that were walking right across the mesa. There was probably about 18 of them. And there were definitely some some alphas and there were also some babies they wolves are probably the most be- and i've seen whales in person i've also seen puffins <laughs> and seals but whale i mean but wolves they were the most beautiful creatures i'd ever seen in my entire life they were just they didn't look raggedy and scary they looked regal and and groomed and they stopped, you know, sort of as they were walking by me and Mike, they were within 15 feet of where I was standing on the edge of this Mesa. So mind you, I'm standing on the edge of the, of this cliff, essentially. I've got nowhere to go. I would have been frightened. No, no. See, this is You're like, like the okay. same height as a wolf. They I know. <laughs> I am. But like <laughs> selfishly, like, And I'll admit this, selfishly, this is one of the biggest reasons why I wanted to do microscope, because I love dicks and politics, don't get me wrong. Oh, God, I love it. And I love when I knew. But there is a side of me that literally belongs alone in a treehouse for the rest of eternity. So I'm standing there, and these wolves are walking past. And as they're walking past, they would stop and look at me. And I made direct eye contact with every single wolf in that pack. And it was one of the most powerful moments that I've ever experienced in my life. I've never felt more connected to nature and to this earth and this planet than in that moment. And they sort of looked at me, you know, this little teeny tiny little meatball, and they just kept walking. <laughs> and they didn't come over to sniff me. They, they weren't interested. They were just kind of like, oh, hey, hey, girl, what's up? And they left, and it was so beautiful, so unbelievable. Uh, I had to share that story. But one of the young women that was guiding me through this nature walk was um, whenever she wasn't working for this organization that I was with, she was out patrolling for wildfires. And she was telling me the money, the money that it takes to not only hire, I don't know if a lot of people know this, but there are people full time whose job it is to literally like sit in towers or hike miles and miles and miles every single day to document what's happening in the forests, you know, the moisture level, the dryness level, all this, that, and the other, but also there are people out there full time that are not only equipped to do the research, but they're that are also trained and at the ready to combat wildfires. And I remember there was a wildfire California summary published between 1999 and 2011, that between 1999 and 2011, 
$160.3 million were spent on fire-related damages. And within the same time period, the USDA Forest Service spent $5.8 billion, billion with a B, on wildfire suppression. That is a lot of money. That That is is a lot. lot It's a lot. That's incredible. I want to know. (laughs) Why is this happening? I think the big thing is that humans are careless, right? Mm. We're, We're the... We're the source of, we're 95% of what causes these forest fires. But I think on top of it, you know, as the climate changes, the areas in which forest fires can occur is also, right, increasing. So as the climate of these specific areas, right, the temperature is increasing, and that is thus causing, you know, the soils to dry up, and that's causing the brush and the other foliage, so the trees and the bushes, those are also drying out because they're not getting enough moisture. And those are, in a sense, like creating more fuel for these forest fires mm-hmm. to occur and to spread. So, so one, wait, what? I have a question. What's an arid zone? Yeah. Oh, what's an arid zone? Right. So an arid zone is, oh, arid zone, arid zona. Okay. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> I just want for all I tried to get a pun I, in there. I tried to I get a pun. I told Mike to stop making jokes and he would not listen, so we apologize. Anyways, That's okay, what joke. is an arid zone? That's your okay, one so, joke. That's all you get. Oh, <laughs> uh, all right. So an arid zone is essentially this area that's very, very dry. So a lot of the um foliage or the bushes that are found in these areas don't see a lot of water often. So most of the year they are just dry and they they can easily be set on fire. Um, But that also includes, well, I think more specifically an arid zone is directly linked to how much water or moisture an area gets. So linking that back to what can cause forest fires is that an area that receives less moisture is going to have less lush and um, it's going to have less lush plants and Mm -hmm. those are going to more easily um, be caught on fire. So the other thing is, right, these arid zones actually increase um, the moisture constraints. So what do I mean by moisture constraints? So areas in which fire can occur need low levels of moisture. So that in turn is going to increase right as these moisture constraints decrease it's going to Mm -hmm. increase the amount of areas in which fire can occur because there's not enough moisture for them to actually okay so basically what mike means is all your friends are getting together and they're saying hey let's go camping this weekend so it's a wednesday it's been raining all day it rained all day on tuesday and it's supposed to rain all day tomorrow but friday saturday and sunday it's going to let up So you guys pile into the truck, you go up, and you go to set up camp. And there's a few things that you're going to notice right away. Even though it's not raining outside, the ground is still wet. The soil is still wet. Okay, so that's number one. There's a temperature because the temperature is temperate enough to prevent that water from evaporating. Exactly. So it's all just kind of hanging out. It's just sitting there, right? So then you guys say, all right, great. Like, we're going to start a fire 
And so lucky for you, you guys brought your own firewood with you. And if you're with someone who's super smart, super savvy, they will keep the firewood in the car because the moment you bring it out, it's going to start to absorb all the moisture in the air, which is going to make it harder for it to light on fire. So let's say, okay, great. You, you're with a smart person. They leave all the firewood in the car, but you need kindling. You need little sticks and little branches. So again, even though it's not raining outside now, all the little sticks are still wet. You know, just like if you, I don't know, we're having a bonfire in your backyard and you were like, oh, great. Like everyone's going to come over at eight but I'm going to go put the wood and the newspaper out at like four. By the time you get out there at eight, it's going to be soaking wet. Not because it was raining outside, but soaking, because there's so but much. Yeah, it's, it'll it's be more be difficult for it to burn. Exactly. So I don't like, okay. And I'm sorry to bring it back to this, but okay. I'm thinking in terms of money again. And we also have to consider the hospitals, the shelters, the emergency crews and the resources. Like what a huge strain on them when these things happen. And I'm not saying that they're not prepared because of course, you know, they are, but I, it's, well, I don't yeah, know. No, I think, I think they are prepared now, but as we see an increase in forest fires, mm-hmm. are they going to be ready? Right. So I think yeah. California, um, I'm actually very unaware of how their medical system or their medical system and the public services are changing. But I think a lot of effort, should be put into other parts of the U.S. where forest fires will become more prevalent to sort of prepare these public services for what's going to come. Yeah, I agree. Like I, I read a study, or it might have been, um, no, it was a study, that talked about how, like, Connecticut um, and, like, the Northeast are, within the next 20 years, going to become more... Um, more prone to these forest fires and oh, forest great. fires happen rarely rarely in that area so i doubt that they're prepared for it you oh, know great. i hope they are i hope anybody listening that works in that field is just like that dude has no idea what he's talking about it's good because <laughs> if they're prepared that's good i you know please be prepared so uh, let me ask you this you're a scientist, and what we always try to tie in this podcast. No. <laughs> no, you are a scientist. Congratulations, you're officially getting a PhD. You are a scientist. So we like to tie things back in this podcast to, all right, what are scientists doing then? Because you have all this data, so what are you doing to understand and prevent future forest fires? This is a big thing in terms of science trying to plan for climate change okay say it and then i will say it in english (laughs) okay well so the big thing is called modeling so i'm going to try to explain modeling so what do i mean by modeling no let me let me explain modeling i want you to explain what science is doing with modeling okay i can work with that so (laughs) modeling what they're doing is they're taking past measurements of where forest fires have occurred, what the temperature of those areas were, what the precipitations levels were, and sort of taking in all of those data points and trying to plan and predict and extrapolate those values to the future. So what areas are going to see similar precipitation, similar temperature, and, you know, basically plan, hey, is a forest fire 
going to happen in that area within the next 10 years? So, you know, think of it like, um, like driving a car. When your car is on empty, you know, all right, the light turned on. I've got three more trips to and from my home to my office before I need to get more gas, right? So there's some days when you're not going to go straight from work to home. You're going to go to the store. You're going to go to a friend's house and so on and so forth. So that lessens, um, you know, those trips from three to maybe two or maybe just one trip. So it's sort of the same thing with science. So you can say to yourself, all right, great. When we look at these regions in these areas and they get this much precipitation with these average temperatures, you know, everything stays pretty moist and it's okay. They're not terribly susceptible. The ground has a lot of moisture. This should be okay. But when you look at it and you're like, oh, you know what? Um, when we see that there is a lot of rain in April, that means that the temperatures are going to be much higher in May than they are typically, which of course speeds up evaporation and makes everything drier, which essentially makes it more flammable. So that's what science is saying when they say they're using these predictive models or they're using modeling. So it's understanding what's happened in the past, what are the factors that are going to disrupt the data, and then what can they apply to predictive insights or to future insights to say okay so we now know that when there's lots of rain in April like we need to be out there roping off these particular areas where people like to go camping in May and June because they're going to be drier than they would be typically I hope that makes sense so basically like they they being science can predict like at-risk locations and the number of fi- the number of fires and so that people can plan like we were just saying at a local state and federal level to control fire activity now i know mike you're very excited you have some crazy percentages to share with us so i will be quiet crazy and i will let you uh, the spotlight is on you okay so right scientists are really trying to plan out and predict where these fires are going to occur But between the time of 1994 and 2008, a couple of models have come out trying to predict these areas. Um, But, you know, the increase in area, the percentage increase in area has changed drastically. So some people have measured that, oh, fire prevalence or areas in which fires can occur are only going to increase by 13%. Or some people said by 40% or others even said by 50%. So at the current state or within, you know, to our best knowledge, we really have no idea. It could either be, you know, 13% of more areas are going to be more prone or 53% of more areas are going to be more prone to these forest fires. Yikes. So I want to understand, and I hate, like, I hate to say it this way, No, are you going to say balance? No, no, I'm not going to say balance. (laughs) No, not like I learned my (laughs) lesson last week. No. So, all right. So I understand what what you're saying, right? So with all this data, you're able to come up with these predictive percentages of, okay. We can do our best to come up with these percentages. Yeah, you can do your best. So I understand that this means that, and I, I, I hate to say this, but like, If science is tracking this, if you guys have these models, if you're doing the research, why are these fires happening anyway? Point the finger. Do it. 
point the finger. It's pointing one finger. Three are pointing back at me. <laughs> well, not me, but it's people. People in general are what's causing it. Uh, but I so, do want. I, I want to switch because I think maybe not switch, but you know, there is this drastic variation in our ability to predict where forest fires can occur. Right. Okay. So what goes into that, right? Like we've said a few things. So temperature is one of them, right? Yep. Temperature can either prevent or increase the amount of water right. that gets precipitation. Evaporated. Yeah, but precipitation is another one. But there's a lot of other things you need to take into consideration. Okay. So Which are the the plant communities that are within these specific areas. So you know, even if a temperature in a certain area increases and decreasing the moisture. Maybe the plants in that area aren't so prone to drying up, right? They might just okay. be better at holding in their water. Um, what, other what plants, I just, I'm wondering, what plants are better at holding in moisture over others? I mean, obviously, things like cacti and succulents are great at holding on to water. That's what they do. But are there any, like, common woodland plants that are better at retaining moisture than others? I don't know that. That's a good Cause, question. Because I'm thinking of like... This is where we call it an expert. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, again, if there's anyone that's listening in and you are an expert... Actually, I do know someone who's um, basically like a tree scientist. I could call her. But I remember um, thinking back to when I would just like go into the woods because I had no friends. <laughs> I actually know I shouldn't say that. I had one friend growing up... <laughs> page and um we spent a lot of time in the woods and i remember um you know trees like um birch trees birch trees are really really good at sort of hanging on to moisture and making it last and last and last whereas um like i'm trying to think of trees that were always kind of dry like oak trees were always kind of dry um huh. for us so like I'm i feel like evergreens might be good at, at keeping in moisture yes evergreens were good they yeah, basically and basically go into dormancy. Hibernation. Yeah. But they also have the thing is is they also have sap. So they've got like an advantage. Oh, they, they've got yeah. a little bit of sap, so that's gonna hang on to the moisture. But um, yeah. you know, you always think of like the trees that you saw, you know, falling and sort of disintegrating faster than other trees. Um, so I just didn't know if you had any examples. Or like, do you know the difference like is like a fern? able to hold on to moisture better than like a little tiny like I don't know I don't even know like an, a little oak sapling <laughs> well I think I, that's a good thing to point out because I think if a fern dries up it's less likely to like it's not it's not a good source of fuel for fire but if like a small oak tree dries up that's a perfect well because um, when if you source of fuel. take a little Exactly. So think of it this way, you guys, like when you take a little oak leaf, you know, like you're in elementary school and they're like, oh, go find a leaf and you're going to make a, a stencil. And it's like the greatest thing. Like if you take an oak leaf or like uh, a maple, making like a clay model, uh, like pressing yes. it in. So <laughs> yeah. So like <laughs> think of it like if you if you go and you grab an oak leaf, like those are going to be like really they're, they're already going to be like crackly and like sad. Right. But a lot of times if you go and you get a maple leaf. Those are the kinds that, like, even though they're turning orange and yellow, they're still pretty moist, you know? Or, like, if I go out and I pick a fern, right, 
and I take the fern and I stick it in a flower arrangement, which I often do for my mother because she's like, go get some ferns. I'm like, whatever you want. So even after all the plants die, even after all the water is sucked up, that fern, it does not really turn to dust. If I put it, you know, between my fingers, it still has a bit of that sort of like pithy, you know, moisture to it. So, um, you know, you think in terms of like the rainforest and there's ferns everywhere and there's moss everywhere, you know, two things that are really good at hanging on to moisture. But of course, if you go into the, to the forest, uh, in California, you're going to find a lot of redwood trees and you're going to find a lot of these other ones that are just very flammable. So, um, I, so I know you were shouting out some pretty big words to me before so we were talking about plant communities but something else you wanted to talk about was the anthropocentric response to climate change can you explain to people exactly what that is yeah so that includes right that's something else people add into their models um because what we do to prevent or increase the prevalence of forest fires is something we also need to take into consideration. So anthropocentric, you want to think about like anthropology, which is the study of civilizations. It's the study of populations, humans, and all that. So an anthropocentric response to climate change has a lot to do with how people in that area are responding to, you know, the needs of climate of, of forest fires so it's um mm. it can be something well wait wait give me a wait, second this might okay all right give me a second give me a second right, go for it. Go so for it. what if so this is my question to you then um this is this sort of change in action and the change in mentality of people in a certain area to prevent forest fires so that could be forest rangers going in and completely roping off an entire area of the forest so that humans can't go there because humans pretty much ruin everything at this point. Or it's, you know, people saying to themselves, okay, great. So I'm going to have a sprinkler system in my yard. And not only am I going to rake up my leaves and I'm going to make sure that there's no brush, you know, sitting around, frumping around, but I'm also going to make sure that I'm doing everything I can to add extra moisture to my property. You know, not that one singular person, again, going back to what we said in the last episode, not that one singular person is going to have a huge effect, but it's that whole like, you know, societal cultural mentality that needs to shift. Am I getting that right? Yes. Yay. Yes. You know, See, yeah. sometimes you just need to give me a chance. <laughs> but I also know that in addition to that, there's the the pyric transition. Can you, yes. am I pronouncing that oh, correctly? And can you, you explain are. what that is? transition. This yes. was something, so, okay. What, it's this sort of like phenomenon that we see, and it's called the pyric transition. And we've seen that as humans move into um, the woodlands, when they first move in there, there's an increase in fire activity. So something about us moving into areas where we haven't been before, there's an increase in fires. Mm-hmm. But then at some point in time, that the amount of fires also decreases. And people have linked that back to sort of like the built environment. So there's more concrete or there's less fuel for the fire. Um other things is that, like you were saying, how people just 
water more. So there's more moisture in that area. So it's like, you know, put it in quotations, it's like a suppression effort, whether or not it's just them trying to keep their grass green year round. Mm -hmm. Got it. So, hmm. So I know that, all right, so here's what we understand. It's that forest fires are preventable and they're preventable if humans will raise their awareness for how to be more responsible when they're out in the wild, but also be more responsible at home and there's climate change and there's all this other stuff. So I'm just wondering, like, this is all because of humans and all because of climate change. And I know that we're looking at the modeling and the model suggests that there is a decline in fire counts, especially um, around those areas increase. that have more of, increase. Sorry, sorry, increase. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I'm just like, there's one model though that does suggest that there's declining fire counts um, around Increasing. areas. <laughs> no, it's not. It's not around coastal influence areas. Oh but yes, yes. Okay. Can you give me a chance, please? I'm sorry. I do read the agenda. I do do the research. <laughs> I do read the articles that you send me. And then my boss comes by and is like, hey, Samantha, how's it going? I'm like, my friend sent me a thesis and I don't know how to read it. <laughs> He's like, oh, great. <laughs> so there is one model that, that science has that suggests a declining fire count in like uh, you know, areas that have more of like a coastal influence, but you wrote in the notes that it's at approximately 35.5 to 39 degrees in latitude. Mike, yes. where is that? Where, so, John Day is that you're talking about the uh, that study by um, oh, that group at the George Washington University. Um, it was by man, it was by man, yeah, and man his and his colleagues, in yeah, 2016. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Ooh, look who did name? her research. Mm. Ah, I'm so I'm surprised. No, I'm <laughs> I went okay. to community college and people want to hate on it. But listen, I am just oh, as capable as the rest of you. You give people the resources and they're able to learn. We're all absolutely. Well, you know, uh, what's crazy is on the East Coast. Community college is so frowned upon. It's like, ew, you go to community college, whereas uh, out in California, it's totally normal. Like, yeah. it's totally, oh, the East Coast really needs to just, like, take a seat. Anyways, okay, I understand, Mike, that there is a line with recent findings of, like, declining future fire probabilities, but it's specifically within Mediterranean ecosystems, and I want you to explain exactly where is that. And of course, this is, these are ecosystems that are like under climate scenarios, projecting warmer and drier conditions. So right. it's kind of going against everything we just said. Like, oh, if it's if it's raining outside, if you're in the rainforest, you're fine. But if you're in the drier climates, mm, good luck. But this is sort of, you know, talking a little bit about that. So I want you to dive into that for me. Yeah, sure. So... When we specifically talk about these Mediterranean-type ecosystems, we're focused in on the latitudes of 30 degrees to about 40 degrees, um, par particularly on the western areas of continents. Okay. Um, so California. And, 
Yeah, so California in particular and in, in the US. And because of their location on planet Earth, this sort of creates this beautiful environment where they have very cool, wet winters, um, but then their summers are also very warm, although there are still there still is a lot of moisture in that area. So sort of like linking back to what we talked about earlier in terms of um, the moisture constraints, right? So these Mediterranean ecosystems are perfect to prevent forest fires or are an ideal place where forest fires don't occur as frequently because they are generally always very wet. Got it. Yeah. So, oh my God, I feel like we have covered a lot in this episode and I, I'm sure people listening are we probably have like, a lot. We have oh my a lot. God, <laughs> is it over yet? So if you've made it to the end, we really appreciate it. Of course, I want to talk about a couple of things. So um, I want to close this out with, there is a way when you're camping, hiking, bonfires, whatever, to go about it in a way that's responsible. So something that I learned when I was in Arizona was something called no trace or like no tracing. So mm. we would get to an area and we were, see, I don't think a lot of people know this. I grew up in New England, right? And I thought that, Oh, okay, you said that like 10 times in this episode. Okay. But <laughs> you look around and there's lots of mountain laurel. There's lots of this, that, and the other. And you're like, okay, great. When you think, when you're a kid growing up in New England and you think of Arizona, you're like, oh my God, it's going to be the desert. There's going to be cactus everywhere and bing bong, bing bong, whatever. There are cacti everywhere. There are, I, but. Everywhere. It was beautiful when I visited. Okay, but the, the, more f the densely forested areas are very similar to what we have in New England. So I just like to start out by saying that. So whenever we would okay. get to a campsite, which again, you know, heavily forested, so on, beautiful, but heavily forested, what you do is you, you want to dig like a pretty decently deep, I would try to go at least a foot deep if I could, um, hole. And you want to try to not do it very close to any tree roots because you don't want to disturb nature and what's going on there. But you... Yep. You do that, and then you have to go, and you have to put rocks around it, which I know some people are like, oh, rocks. No, I don't care. You have to put rocks around your fire um, for a couple of reasons. First of all, that just sort of helps contain and keep everything in a nice little area. But another nice thing is, like, if you get a nice uh, river rock, what you can do is you can let it sort of heat up by the fire, and then right before you go to bed, grab a handkerchief, roll it up in the handkerchief, and then stick it down in the uh, in the bottom of your sleeping bag, and your little feet are going to be so warm for at least four hours or so. So it's another. I'm writing all of this down <laughs> so I can it's use it It's another thing you can do, but Thank you don't want to do like <laughs> if you have a nylon sleeping bag, then like no, I don't recommend. But I had a really diesel sleeping bag that was from the Army Surplus store, so that's why I could do it. But um, okay. but yeah. So anyways, once you're once you're done, right? Um, first of all. Like before you go to bed, you definitely want to try to pour water on top of your fire. Like I understand for me, I didn't have any lighters and I didn't have a match. So I had to bust a coal. I was making coal with a bow drill or a hand drill every single morning. So I can understand that it can be very alluring to just say, oh, well, just let the coals burn out. No. If you guys have matches or lighters or lighter fluid, which I'm sure you do, just go ahead, you know, throw some water on it um, and be responsible before you're going to bed because you don't want those coals simmering overnight. And you also don't want them catching in the wind and going into the freaking, you know, 
the oak leaves that we were just talking about in this episode and catching (laughs) on fire. But there's something you can do called no tracing, right? So every single time we would move on to a different location, a different campsite, we would do something called no tracing. So first you go and you just get canteens and canteens of water and you throw that on top of the fire. Now the smell I will let you know, I was really sensitive to the smell. Like I could not no trace without wrapping my face in a sweatshirt first. But you basically, you throw the water all over the coals. You make sure that everything is out. And then you want to stomp the coals out. And if you don't want to get it on your shoes, then take a rock and smash the coals. Break them all up so that they don't have, you know, a lot to feed off of, right? Then what you want to do is you want to take dirt and you want to pile that on top of the coals and then go back and get more water, pour that Wait, on Wait, so you, you, you can't just pee on it? No, you can't just pee okay. on it. You, you, you got to go through a it? whole thing. And after okay. you do that, you then want to take a stick and you want to just make sure you just want to stir it up like a stew. You want to make sure that everything is wet, that everything is damp, that there is no ember left in that at all. And then it's also sort of nice to like cover it up with dirt because it helps it go back into the earth. And for the next people that come along, like, yeah, they'll be like, oh, wow, okay. <laughs> there was a campfire here probably two days ago. But um, it's just, it's a no trace. It's a way to leave no trace and no no footprint behind. And you just I make like it nice for the next person. So, like, I don't want to discourage people from going outside and spending time in nature. I think it's so important to do that because by doing that, you, much like me, you will completely fall in love with our planet and all the beautiful things that it has to offer. But there is a responsible way that you should be going about it. You know, make sure that when you do go camping, pick up all your trash, bring it home with you. It's not that big of a deal. Throw it in a bag. When you get home, you put it at the end of the driveway and the garbage man comes to get it. Um, Before you go to bed, I know that it's nice to fall asleep to the sound of the crackling fire. Get a sound app on your phone. Turn it on if you like the (laughs) crackling noise and just leave it at that because it's just, it is so important for us to get outside and enjoy the environment, but you've got to do it in a way that's thoughtful and responsible. So I, before getting too preachy, I'm going to end it there. I want to thank you all so much for tuning in to microscope and especially to this episode i know that we're just getting started it's a little rough mike would you agree we're a little rough around the edges (laughs) i mean of course a little rough this is what our second episode yeah we're a little rough around the edges but we are so excited to be doing this podcast we truly are so passionate about our environment and helping people understand exactly what's going on and what they can do to be a part of it in a positive way rather than a negative way. So oh, and then I just want to say, I hope everyone is excited for next week's episode, which is going to be how widespread is climate change? Because I think we're going to sit down and talk about will climate change affect every place? Mm-hmm. Or just some places. What will it be? We'll we'll talk about that. We'll talk about that. We're really excited. We're going to be covering climate change. We're going to be talking about asthma. We're going to be talking about Twitter. We're going to go into bees and honey, like, sorry, not bees and honey, bees and coffee. There are so many different topics that we're going to cover because again, like we said before, 2015, 16, 17, 18, we're seeing all these different media companies put out these 
quick little videos that are anywhere from 30 seconds to, you know, six and a half minutes. And it's talking about, oh, the bees are becoming extinct and, oh, there's a rise in asthma and this, that, and the other. And that's all correct, but we're going to talk about it and tell you why. And again, of course, we're going to offer you ways that you can be sure that you're having a positive impact on what's happening in the world. So if you guys are not already, follow us on Instagram. We're at microscope podcast. Again, microscope is spelled with a K because this is with Mike and we thought it would be cute if we spelled it with a K. Um, we we came up with inter- that like first episode. Yep, we did. And we, well, we should start calling that the first episode and call it. It's the pilot episode. Broken recording. <laughs> it's the pilot. <laughs> Uh, as CEO of this production company, it is the pilot episode. But girl, as your friend, it was the drunken episode. And that's fine. It's fine because look at what it started. And people are loving this, you guys. We would love for you to slide into our DMs, you know, go into the comment section. Let us know if there's anything else that you want to talk about, that you want to learn about. Let us know because we are more than open to suggestions. We would love to hear from all of you. So I am Samantha. And I'm Mike. And you have just listened to episode two of Microscope. Yes, and thank you all so much for tuning in.